right, well, there are no known announcements for this evening. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and ready to study his word. So I'll ha we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful we have you to come to in times of need, and we know that you are fully aware of all of our needs at any given moment, but you desire for us to bring these requests before you and to seek your guidance and your direction as we commit our path to you, trusting in you. Father, we pray that as we come together this evening to study your word, that it might be uh, a passage that we can understand more fully and that as we get into this section, it is meant for encouragement in the time of false teachers, which Peter addressed at his time. And we certainly live in a day that is very similar. So, Father, we pray that we might understand the passage and that we might gain great hope because the focus of the passage ultimately is on looking forward to the blessed hope of our Savior coming for us at the rapture. And, Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, and tonight we're going to get down into a couple of more verses after some review. I did have a few requests from people who said that was a great, great study last week, but I need to have a good review because there was a lot of detail there, and there was. So we'll have a bit of a review and then go forward into two or three uh, new verses. So I've titled it Preserved, Reserved, Do Not Forget. And then we're going to close with an introduction to the day of the Lord. So we're covering uh, some territory. So as I pointed out last time, we're in the third chapter in Second Peter. Second Peter has three divisions, each based on these chapter divisions. And in the, in the body of the third chapter... The focus is on the refutation of these, the claims of these false teachers that the, the, who are denying the literal second coming of Christ because their claim is, well, all things have continued the way they have been since the creation, and therefore he's not coming back, you know, and they just ridicule Christians for what they believe. And so... Uh, Peter is explaining why the Lord is taking his time. And what we see here is that it's primarily because the Lord desires for as many to be saved as possible. And what's wrapped around this is a, also a refutation of their basic claims. So we looked at this last time, that this is the claim of the scoffers. And I translated this more literally that uh, they are to know this first. This is the first point that he's making, and it has priority. He says, in the last days, scoffers will come with their scoffing. He's using a typical uh, Hebraism, uh, the way he sets it up, walking according to their own lusts. And then he says, he talks about that this is driven by their lust. That's the same thing if we go back to chapter 2. He says, all this false teaching is just driven by the lust patterns of their sin nature. Some of them have different motivations. For some, it's money lust. Some, it's uh, pleasure lust. It's sexual lust. It's approbation lust. But whatever it is, it's driven by their, uh, their lust patterns. And what they're saying is, out of arrogance, they're just taunting the Christians and saying, where's the promise of his coming? You say Jesus is coming back? It's been 2,000 years. He's not coming back. 
Nothing really changes. Nothing has changed since the creation of the world. And you just have a false hope. That's their ultimate claim. So this is the main issue that is going to be part, shape the rest of this chapter. The main body is related to the coming of Christ. And as I pointed out, the word that is used there in the Greek is parousia. In Matthew 24, it's used four or five different times to return to refer to the second coming of Christ. But in passages such as 2 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, it refers to the rapture. So it's not a technical term uh, for the rapture, which is what uh, some people mistakenly uh, mistakenly believe. And we looked at the Olivet Discourse and how Jesus is answering the question that the disciples have asked, which is, when will these things be? When will the temple this temple be destroyed, and that's really answered in the Luke parallel account. It's not answered in Matthew's account. And the second question is what's answered in the Matthew account, and that is what will be the sign of your coming? And again, that's the word parousia. So they're talking about the second coming. Matthew 24 is all about the future for Israel. And what they what the signs for Israel would be in the tribulation for the coming Christ's second coming. That remember that was about Monday afternoon of the week uh, after he had entered Jerusalem, the week of his crucifixion, and it will be on probably Thursday night that he will celebrate the Passover, the Seder meal with his with his disciples. And that's when he teaches them about what's going to happen in the coming church age. A lot of people get confused when they get to Matthew 24, thinking that this is about, that halfway through this, he shifts from the second coming to, to uh, the rapture. But the focus is on the signs that occur during the tribulation, which is a seven-year period based on the terminology in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that God laid out a timetable for Israel, 70 weeks. Literally in the Hebrew, it's 70 periods of seven. 70 times seven is 490 years. But it stops short at seven plus 62, which is 69. So at the end of the 69th week, after the 69th week, the Messiah is cut off, and then the prince who is to come destroys the temple. So the stopwatch stops with seven years left to go. And during that, and after that, you have two things that are going to happen, but then we don't know what starts the clock again. But if you carefully look at the verses, when you get down to 26 and 27, when the, the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come refers to the um, Antichrist, uh, who we, is never really described by that term in Scripture. The term is either the beast, the prince who is to come. There's a lot of different titles, but everybody goes to the Antichrist, but that's only possibly used one time, and other terms are used. But when, but he's going to enter into a pact, a covenant, or peace treaty with Israel, and that's what gets the stopwatch going again for the last seven years. And that's what we have here, this chart of the 70th year, which is divided by in half, two, three-and-a-half-year periods, and the event that occurs in the middle is the abomination of desolation. And that is in Daniel 9, 9, 27. So the first three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week are called the beginning of sorrows by Jesus. And in Matthew 24, 4 through 8, the different things that are mentioned are there, the wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, all of these things, earthquakes, all of these things are signs. They're not what's happening now. They're what the things that will happen in the first seal judgments in uh, Revelation chapter 6 that 
are in the tribulation period. They are radically different to a, uh, an in intensively different would be a better way to put it than any wars, any pestilences, any famines, any earthquakes that we've ever seen in human history. And then in the second three and a half years, Jesus warns of an increased persecution uh, of the Jews after the Antichrist breaks the covenant and after he sets himself up to be worshipped as God. But I pointed something out here, which is why I wanted to review this, because after he describes these uh, these various things that are going to happen at the beginning, the wars and rumors of wars and famines and persecution and earthquakes, he says in verse 9, then, he uses this word tote, which I didn't need to transcribe because you can pretty much ought to be able to read that even though it's in Greek, the, the T and the O and the epsilon all are easily discernible. Then, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. That word is very important. When he says then, does he mean then as in after these initial things, or is he talking about something that is happening at the same time as those? It's after. He's setting up a, a chronological order here. So first this, then this, than this, because in fact, I didn't have these other verses up last week. Verse 10 says, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. See, there's an order of events here, so the then indicates something that happens after the previous event. It's subsequent to it. We'll come back to that in the Peter passage. So the warning is when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel, where the Antichrist is standing in the holy place, then flee. So that's the framework for understanding the tribulation period. And following that, we have, uh, then there will be great tribulation. That's not a technical term. John Walbert wanted to make it a technical term. A lot of people teach it that you have the tribulation and then the great tribulation, making it a technical term. That phrase is only used twice. That's not enough to make something a technical term. It simply means, as the context indicates, it's much worse than the adversity in the first half. Okay? And now it's going to be so great that it's never been seen in the history of the world. So we're, we're enjoined to be ready. So there's this warning not to be deceived by the coming of the Messiah, and that fifth, the coming of the Son of Man will be in great glory and regather regenerate Israel, in verses 29 to 31. And then there's this statement about, a, there's a parable of the fig tree. And the point is, when you see the um, the leaves coming out and the blossoms on the tree, then you know that it's not long before you're going to have fruit and then a harvest. So you can follow. When you see these things occurring in the first half of the tribulation, you know what's coming. And so that there's that warning. And then he says, and this is the passage that confuses a lot of people. A lot of people think this is talking about the rapture all of a sudden. Because they don't, they, they, as soon as they see him talking about the fact that you may be taken by surprise, you may not be, you, you, you're not aware that it's about to happen, you think, oh, that's the rapture because there's no signs related to it. Well, we're talking about unregenerate Israel at this time, and we're talking about an unregenerate mankind who are A, willingly ignorant of what the scripture says and b i think because of all of the chaos that is taking place that uh, and daniel 7 indicates the, uh, that the antichrist will seek to change times just as they did in the french revolution change the calendar i think people will be completely confused the, about just exactly when jesus will come and so it will come as a, as a surprise. And Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father. Well, when people read that, they think, oh, that's the rapture. 
But several times that's, that kind of language is used in relation to the second coming as well because of the confusion of the time. And then there's this comparison that is often misunderstood. As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, let's really think about the days of Noah. That was a time of unrestrained evil, sin, debauchery, perversion, sexual perversion, the sons of God coming down and taking human wives to marry and produce an offspring that was uh, half angel and half man. That's the kind of marriages that were going on at that time. So when Jesus says, for as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, this isn't a sacred, normal marriage that you and I are used to witnessing. The marriages that were going on, according to Genesis 6, were perverted marriages. And Jesus is making that kind of a comparison. And so this is what is going on. Uh, that at that time it says until the day of Noah that Noah entered the ark and what's interesting is a nuance of that word until indicates that it continues and then when this until description takes place it stops it's that way in 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 the grammar that that that's until is indicating what stops it and so what stops all of that is going to be that judgment that comes in the flood. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. They didn't know because nobody told them. They didn't know because they didn't believe what they were told. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and he informed them, but they refused to believe it, just like we have today. We have people who have heard the gospel a hundred times, can probably correctly repeat it to you. But they don't believe it, and they think anybody who believes it's living in a fantasy world. They have no respect for people who believe that because they think it's just something that's made up. It's just a religious myth. And that's the way it is. It will be in the time before the tribulation and as it was before the time of the flood. So they're warned that they are um, about with the parable of the fig tree, and then there's three parables that come up in the remainder of chapter 24 and 25 that all talk about um, the Jews that survived the tribulation and then the Gentiles that survived the tribulation. Then we looked at several prophecies from the Old Testament that are split, that in these chapters, uh, Isaiah 9, Zechariah 9, Jeremiah 23, 5 and following, and Malachi 3, 1, those passages of several verses will have uh, one, one or two verses that are prophesying about the Messiah, but they were fulfilled at the first coming, and the next verse or two or three verses are fulfilled at the second coming. So there's numerous places where you have that kind of a split because the Old Testament gave no indication that there would be a gap between the first and second coming. That would have given Israel perhaps a heads up that maybe something's going to go awry and you're, uh, you're not going to accept him the first time. So there's no hint of the church age. There's no hint that there's going to be this uh, other age that's inserted between the cross and the return of Christ in glory. So they're ridiculing the Christians and saying, well, where's the promise of his coming? And actually this statement, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, is articulated in the doctrine of uniformitarianism, which is the way in which evolution dates things, whether you're talking about dating fossils or dating rocks or whatever it is, you're, you're dating the geological formations. It all, it's all based on measuring a process of deterioration, whether it's carbon-14 carbon-14 or whether it's some other radiometric form of, of uh, deterioration. They're assuming that that rate of de deterioration that is observed today has always been observed and always been followed. But 
the flood would have completely interrupted all of those processes. So you can't use them for accurate dating back beyond a, a certain limited time. And that is the, what undergirds evolutionary thought, the doctrine of uniformitarianism, that these natural laws and the deterioration processes observed today have been going on at the same rate. And if you take some of those processes, they indeed give very long periods of time. But as you can see in numerous uh, creationist material written by scientists, they look at a number of other processes that indicate that the earth is maybe only a thousand years old or maybe 10,000 or 40,000 or 12,000 or 60 weeks. I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut. So they're really just picking and choosing the long dates, the long processes in order to come uh, confirm their, their theory. So then Peter said, for this they willingly forget. They intentionally reject what the Bible teaches about creation. And the first part of what they forget is the phrase that by the word of God the heavens were of old. In other words, God spoke and it came into existence. There was absolutely nothing. And that nothing was completely empty. There's nothing exists whatsoever. And God spoke and the universe came into existence complete and functional. Because God in his omniscience and omnipotence knows everything there is to know from the smallest particle to the greatest system. And all of it came into existence perfectly and functionally with just his word, as is confirmed by a number of passages. But then where we get into some debate historically among earlier dispensationalists is the last phrase, and the earth standing out of, the wa- out of water and in the water. And in, among early dispensationalists, late 19th century dispensationalists, early 20th century dispensationalists, in attempt to try to um, make the Bible fit with the evolutionary theory of, old, uh, of an old earth, they were trying to come up with ways to make the earth older from Scripture. And one view was they took a view that had been in existence since at, documented to at least the second century A.D., and that is that there is some sort of a time lapse, an interval between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, during which time Satan fell and God judged the, the fallen angels. Job 38-4-7 makes it clear that when God created the foundations of the earth, all of the sons of God in unity praised God and sang for, shouted for joy when he uh, created the heavens and the earth, the foundation. That's the beginning part that underlies everything. So that is Genesis 1-1. But the picture in Genesis 1-2, you've got three phrases, the deep, the darkness, and tohu vabohu, empty and void. Now, if it was just one of those, then I wouldn't say this. But those three have a tendency to show up in passages where there's been divine judgment on something. Darkness is always used as a picture of the presence of, of evil. And the chaos of Tohu Vabohu is used to describe God's judgment on Israel. So when you see those three things together, it's sort of like when you are just walking through the house and kids have the TV on and they're playing, watching some movie and all of a sudden you hear Darth Vader's theme. You just hear the music and instantly you start hearing that breathing. <gasps> 
Because you know just from the music that he's about to come onto the scene. And, and that's what we see when we, hear, when we read these words. They, they, they give foreshadowing that something has happened here to, the, to God's creation. And then the picture is in Genesis 1-2 that there's water all over the earth. And the earth is completely covered in water. It's a picture that judgment has happened. And there's no dry land. It's just a watery planet. Now, it's not saying what you have in pagan mythology, and that is that that there's some sort of watery mass out of which the gods and goddesses are formed and all of these other things. It is simply the planet, which is earth, and its solid mass, and it is covered in water. And then you have the description of what begins on the first day when God uh, creates light and separates the light from the darkness. It's not until the third day that God gathers the waters together in one place which exposes dry land. And that's what this is really talking about when it uses that phrase. But you see you have these older dispensationalists like Clarence Larkin in his book, Dispensational Truth, uh, making the statement that it's clear that Peter does not refer here to Noah's flood, for the world of Noah's day did not perish. By that he means it wasn't annihilated. He, he, assign, he talks out of both sides of his mouth with that word perish. Uh, what does he mean by that? Because the text clearly says that. So he says the world of Noah's day did not perish, but per- the word perish doesn't mean to annihilate, it just means destruction. And Peter goes on to add that, and this is what he says, the heavens and earth which are now, that is, have been in existence since the restoration of the earth. But see, the earth wasn't destroyed after it was covered with water either. It, it, it continues, it's one continuity. And anyway, I, I that's why it's important here because when we look at these words standing, they made a lot of attempts to try to make the word standing, um, make an issue out of that. I think there are issues that are there, but it doesn't relate to uh, what existed between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. It's talking about how the dry land comes out of the water on the third day but there are those who seek to attempt to see some sort of primordial Near Eastern origin myth here that it is out of this watery mass that God forms everything and then they'll go into some sort of evolutionary thing as well. So it's very clear the word standing, that's uh, translated standing in the New, New King James and in the New, uh, New King James, King James and the New Living Translation translates the word soon istemi. And that word has the meaning of bringing something together by gathering. So what's happening is God's gathering the waters in one location, which exposes the dry land. And so it's not a creation term. It's never used to translate yatsar, which is a Hebrew word used in uh, Genesis 1, to refer to forming something from existing materials like a potter forms something with clay. So you don't, this isn't talking about uh, original creation uh, at all, or, or that this is the process God is using. And as I pointed out here in the right panel, that just the different translations that are brought forth. So the the land is gathered out of the water, separated as the water is gathered together, the dry land appears, so it comes through the water, which is how it should be translated. It's a, the same grammar that you have in we should be saved by grace through faith. And, and uh, that becomes very clear. So Genesis 1-9 begins the description of the third day of creation, or some would say restoration. Let the water, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, 
and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Now, when God called the dry land earth, we could also use earth to describe the whole planet, water and land. But here he's just using the word Eretz to describe the dry land part, the continents that are above, above the water. So in 3.5, when Peter is saying this, that it, it's the land, it's not the earth as, if, as the planet that is gathered out of the water. It is the land that comes out through the water. And then in 3.6, I pointed out you've got a problem at the beginning where it says, by which the world that then existed perished. This is simply a, uh, a problem with textual transmission. And some of the manuscripts have a singular relative pronoun, and others have a plural relative pronoun. Uh, some are translated this way, by which which is a more accurate translation of the initial phrase dia plus the relative uh, pronoun han, that it, then it should be translated by or through which, which would speak to the water. And I think that's really the best, best translation there. So what we see in Genesis 1 is that on the first day, God, the earth is covered with water and God makes light, separates the light from the darkness, and sees that it's good and calls it day one. And then on day two, God separates the waters above from the waters below, and there is the firmament or atmosphere separating the waters above from the waters below. And then on day three, he gathers the waters in one place and the dry land appears. So there's, it's, this is the third day before that happens, and so it has nothing to do with what's going on between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And that's why it is so important in 3-6 where it says, by which the world that then existed, that's that same word we saw in Matthew. Does the then refer to something that happened during the previous situation or the next step? It's the next step. It's the subsequent action. So this just destroys that attempt to force a, a, an interpretation of, of 2 Peter 3 into the, this gap between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. And many of you may have never heard that, but I will tell you when I was young, that was a dominant interpretation. And it was based on what Larkin said and what G.H. Pember said and a few others uh, that were making significant exegetical errors in order to fit an interpretation to their, uh, their theology. So the then refers to the next step. God gathers the waters together, the earth appears, and then the earth that existed as a result of that is later destroyed, being flooded by water. And the word that he uses for flooded by water is the word cataclyso, where we get our word cataclysm. It's the verb form that, for, that is used for the flood. And the noun form cataclysmos was used back in chapter 2 to refer to the flood. So this shows a connection there that what Peter is talking about in verse 6 is the flood of Noah, the worldwide flood of Noah, and not some uh, ex- something that existed before Genesis 1-2. Now we come to our next verse that reads, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, as we look at this, first thing we ought to emphasize is that the contrast that is there in the Greek is a soft contrast. It indicates, again, a, just a transition uh, to the next stage, as it were. And Peter is now making a point that is the heavens and the earth. Where have we seen that phrase before? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. There's no word in Hebrew for universe. What you have is this phrase. It's a figure of speech called amerism, where you talk about two opposite conditions, like day and night, and what you're talking about is 24-7. If you were to meditate on God's word day and night, it's not talking about 15 minutes before you go to bed and 15 minutes after you wake up in the morning. It's talking about throughout the day. So it's a term, by using those opposites, putting them together, it's talking about uh, uh, an entire entity. So the heavens and the earth describe the universe. So God creates the universe, and at this point there are no stars, no moon, no sun, so the only planet in this continuum is the earth. He's created this space-time continuum, and he places the earth in it. It's not until you get to day four that God begins to uh, create the sun and the moon and the stars. So he, that, but, but what Peter is saying is the heavens and the earth which are now. So now that would include the stars and the sun and the moon. And he says they are now at this time. See, previously they were destroyed by flood. And they perished. But now they are preserved. And this is the word thesarizo. Thesarizo, which is uh, the verb form of the noun thesaurus, which is where we get our word for a a dictionary-type book that lists synonyms. It's called a thesaurus. It is a treasury of words. So the the verb uh, thesarizo this talks about a treasure, something that is stored up, treasuring something. It is a verbal idea, uh, gathering something, saving up something, or reserving something. And it's translated in the New King James as preserving, and others say it is uh, stored up uh, by the same word, or it's preserved is a good idea, or, and it, the parallel is the word reserved, that comes in the next line. So they are synonyms. Tereo is the word translated reserved, used many times, and uh, Jesus talks about it as he keeps us in his hand, and that's the word tereo. It is a good word for relating eternal security, and it has that idea of keeping or guarding something. So it is preserved by the same word that created it. God sustains the universe. It cannot be destroyed by anything that human beings do. It may be trashed, but it can't be destroyed. The atmosphere will not be destroyed. The earth will not be destroyed. Uh, It just pains me sometimes when I hear, I saw something on the news the other day, and some little kid is being taught, oh, you have to put that little... You have to put that metal thing in the right container so you can save the planet. You can't save the planet because you can't destroy the planet. Now, that does, that's not an excuse for being irresponsible, but there's a solid biblical position called stewardship of the planet that is not the same as the pagan earth-worshipping uh, ecological uh, philosophy that dominates today. And, and this, this um, green movement has its roots in a lot of horrible philosophies. And uh, Mark Musser, who is now he's living in Almaty in Kazakhstan, but he's been working with uh, Jim Myers a lot over the years and used to live in Ukraine and will be moving back there next year. But he's written an outstanding book on this that that it's a little tough to read for people who don't have a background in a lot of 19th century philosophy. But during the period of, of, of the Nazis, and the book is called Nazi Oaks, and during that period, part of their, they had a strong nature worship aspect to their philosophy And one of the reasons they hated the Jews was because the Hebrew Bible teaches 
man's stewardship in Genesis 1, that man is to rule over God's creation. And that is an opposite philosophy to uh, the ecological mythology that dominates today, which, as Mark demonstrates, really has its roots in a lot of pagan religions, pagan philosophy, and occultism. And all of that came together in just a toxic brew in the philosophy of of Nazism. So uh, that is an excellent resource if you want to investigate uh, those particular things. So the heavens and the earth are now preserved by the word of God, which cannot be broken, and they are reserved for fire. Now, what kind of fire is that? That's a question we're going to have to address, is what kind of fire is that? And we'll get to that when we get into verses 10 through 13. It's reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. Now, perdition, that's a word probably everybody here uses at least three or four times every day, right? That's sort of an antiquated word, and it simply means destruction. That um, Judas Iscariot was called the son of perdition, the son of destruction, and it is the noun down here at the bottom, apaleia, and it's related to the verb apalumi, which talks about perishing, that if you don't trust in Christ, believe in God's only begotten son, then you will perish and not have eternal salvation. So it is a word related to destruction, and then it says asogeia, the ungodly men. That's talking about unbelievers. Now the question that comes up that we'll have to address is, is this judgment that's mentioned here, the judgment of the tribulation, which is a judgment on the planet and on all of the unbelievers on the planet, unbelieving Israel, Not all of Israel will be unbelieving, but there will be many that are, and unbelieving Gentiles. There's a judgment on them that concludes with the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So is this judgment of fire related to what happens at the end of the tribulation, or does it relate to something that occurs at the end of the millennium? Now, the next verse begins to establish the underlying principle of why we wait, why God has waited so long, why the coming of the Lord has been delayed. And Peter says, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. Now, he didn't say one day is a thousand years. He says it's that little word as that's important. It's a comparative word and tells us this is a simile. It's a figure of speech. You remember that from probably 8th grade or 7th grade, that a simile uses like or as and is comparing two things, and a metaphor drops it out, and it's just an unstated comparison. But this states it as the one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. In other words, the point is God is timeless. He's not bound by the chronometers that are grounded in the rotation of planet Earth and its revolution around the sun. That is how we measure time, and that was set up and established by God in Genesis chapter 1. It was evening, and it was morning the first day. Then it was evening and morning, and it was the second day, and it was evening and morning and the third day. God established a 24-hour clock with the seven-day week. In the French Revolution, they attempted to change the uh, week to a 10-day week, and it just fell apart. It did not work because that's not how God set, set things up. This is a quote or application from Psalm 90, verse 4, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. It is a dramatic and poetic way of expressing the fact that God is not bound by time. 
that God is above time. He created time. That God, as I think about this, it is as God is in heaven and he looks down and he sees all of time from the beginning of the creation to Revelation 22 in front of him and one picture. So the idea, some people talk about foreknowledge. That's a very anthropocentric way of talking about it. God isn't at one end looking down towards the other end. God is really above observing and seeing everything as if it is happening within a second in terms of him because he's not bound by any time whatsoever. Try to think your way through that tonight before you go to sleep. It may help you go to sleep. So this is it. God is not bound by time. So even though it appears to us that we've waited for so long, in God's timetable, it's just a couple of days. That that reminds me, if I can remember it and tell it correctly, of a rabbi joke that Arnold Fruchtenbaum tells. And so this guy goes, sees God and wants to have a few questions answered. And he says to God, he says, well, well, God, how... How, what is a day like for, uh, what is a thousand years like to you? And God said, well, well, it, it's just a, just a minute. And so the guy says, well, what is, uh, what, what's uh, a million dollars like to you? And, and God said, well, it, it's just like a dollar. And um, so the guy says, well, why don't you give me a dollar? God said, in a minute. So verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. This is the application of the principle. The God's, God's not slack. He's timeless. So you've been waiting a long time, but it's not any time at all. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he's patient. He's long-suffering. The Greek is makrothemia. We studied that in our study in Ephesians on Sunday morning. Long-suffering. He is patient. And he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is just a fantastic statement of God's love for mankind, rebellious, obnoxious, sinful, wicked, evil mankind. God desires to save as many as possible. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So some people will say, well, if God wants everybody to be saved, why aren't they? It's because God gave them volition. They have responsibility to decide for themselves whether they want to know God, whether they want to accept the gospel as true, or whether they want to set themselves up as their own authority and, in in effect, their own deity. That was the temptation to Eve. You want to be like God, eat the fruit. So that led to all of the destruction. So this brings us to a very interesting passage that we'll probably spend several weeks taking apart because we have to look at it in detail. Verse 10 simply states, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now he jumps back to the statement that he made uh, earlier related to the heavens and the earth reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But the day of the Lord, that time of judgment, as a preacher from the turn of the last century put it, R.G. Lee, in a very famous sermon a hundred years ago, he said, Payday someday. We all meet that judgment. So he says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. 
that imagery is used numerous times. The Lord uses it in Matthew 24. It's used in other passages to describe the coming of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. It will come as a thief in the night. It's used by Paul in Second Thess- uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 and 3 in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, among dispensationalists, there are actually two approaches to this verse. The one that most of you have heard and I have heard and that I have taught and that has been... um, Primary, my primary understanding of this is that this occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. But there's another view, and I'll tell you a little story. There was a guy who graduated from Dallas Seminary about a year or two before I started, and I knew his name because he and four other students had Back in 1976, we didn't. We thought all this stuff about computers and Bible study was was some kind of science fiction that might come into effect in another hundred years. But these guys got together, rented time. I think it was at the uh, Frito Lay plant in Dallas on their computer. So they'd go down there at night, and they took the main. Hebrew lexicon of the day, which was Brown, Driver, and Briggs Hebrew lexicon, which if you read the entries, it'll give you the word, and then it lists the references for all the different uses and the different meanings, and you have all those Bible verses in there. So they split it up into into four or five different sections, and each guy coded that in, and they uh, developed a program, and it spit out uh, a verse-by-verse list of all the words that were used, how they were translated, in order from Genesis 1-1-1-2-1-3-1-4. So you could, and they published that. It was an index to Brown, Driver, and Briggs, and it made the study of Hebrew and translation infinitely easier because you could just open that up and see, okay, these are the words, that's the page they're listed on where there's a discussion in BDB and then go right to it. And um, and this guy uh, pastored a doctrinal church for a number of years. He's retired now. But he would bend my ear and bend Tommy Ice's ear, probably bend Jim's ear too, at pastor's conferences over the years, uh, saying, this passage is not talking about the end of the millennium. And I just figured he had a little hobby horse that he wanted to ride, and he would talk about, well, you know, Walvard's got it wrong, and Ryrie's got it wrong, and Pentecost has it wrong. And um, in those days, I didn't know all the technicalities that I do now in relation to all the prophetic passages. So I would say, well, one day, someday, I'm going to have to really look into this. Well, there's payday someday. And we're at that passage. So I've been in conversations with him for a couple of months and with uh, Tommy and with any number of other people. And Jim Myers is here, and Jim and I went through it yesterday, and Jim and I have come to an understanding and agreement on what we think is going on in this passage. But we have to start laying the groundwork. And so we have this passage that talks that locates this as the day of the Lord, And that's when this takes place. So the first question we have to address is, what is the day of the Lord? What does that mean? Now, I have taught this in the way that I was taught at seminary, basically holding to the definition of John Walvoord, who was Chafer's successor. John Walvoord, Chafer had a Well, he has two different definitions in his systematic theology. I'll show you that in a minute. And that's what I have held to and taught. I'm not sure that I have had, ever since I taught through Revelation, I have had my doubts about that as a valid definition. 
But I want you to understand what's going on here, because sometimes when a pastor gets up and says, well, you know, I used to say this, and now I say this, people go, well, wait a minute, what you used to say is what I've always heard. I was comfortable with that. Uh, why are you changing? Well, I'll show you why you should not have been comfortable at all. So we'll go back and take a little historical trip through the history of dispensationalism. And so one of the early dispensationalists, late 19th century, was a former alcoholic turned lawyer, highly decorated soldier of the Confederacy, so I guess they'll want to cancel the Schofield Reference Bible now. C.I. Schofield, great Bible teacher and mentor to Lewis Berry Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary. One day, they were riding on a train together because Chafer would travel with them. Chafer played the trumpet, and he was a tra traveling evangelist who would travel with Schofield. And Schofield tapped him on the tapped him on the arm, and he said, you know, Lewis, one day you're going to make a passable Bible teacher. So this is Schofield. The day of Jehovah, also called that day and the great day, and that's debatable, is that lengthened period of time beginning with the return of the Lord in glory. Now, when is that? That's the second coming. That's at the end of the tribulation beginning with the return of the Lord in glory and ending with the purgation of the heavens and the earth by fire preparatory to the new heavens and new earth. And he lists Isaiah 65, 17 to 19, which we'll study in depth, Isaiah 66, 22, 2 Peter 3, 13, Revelation 21, 1. Interesting. Then we have another dispensationalist from the early to mid-20th century, Harry Ironside, who was pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago and frequently would come down and teach modules at Dallas Theological Seminary in the 30s and the 40s. And he said, When at last the day of grace is ended, that's the church age, the day of the Lord will succeed it. The day of the Lord follows the rapture. It will be the time when the judgments of God are poured out on, upon the earth. It includes the descent of the Lord with all his saints to execute judgments on his foes and to take possession of the kingdom. That's the second coming. And to reign in righteousness for a thousand glorious years. So, so now he says it doesn't begin with the second coming. It begins right after the rapture and goes all the way to, through to the end of the millennium. Then we have Lewis Berry Chafer. I've got two or three quotes from him. He says, reference to the day of the Lord, it will be remembered, is to that extended period of a thousand years long predicted. What's that? That's the millennium. So in that passage, he restricts it to just the millennium. Uh, another passage in his Systematic Theology, this is volume 4, which is on eschatology, says the day of the Lord is characterized by the reign of Christ over Israel and the world on David's throne in Jerusalem accompanied by his bride, the church. In that time, the believers will not only share in Christ's reign and judgments of mankind, but also in his judgments of the angels. The judgment of angels continues throughout the thousand years. Interesting statement but he restricts it to just the millennium, a time of blessing. So a question we need to address when we look through Old Testament passages is, does the term day of the Lord ever include a time of blessing? In another passage, he says, this period extends from Christ's coming as a thief in the night to the passing of the heavens and the earth that now are and the melting of the elements with fervent heat. He goes on to say, it seems highly significant that in the same context and under the same theme in which there, those outmost boundaries of the day of the Lord are given, 2 Peter 3, 8-12, it is declared that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So he's trying to make a connection between that mention of a thousand years and the millennium, which is doubtful hermeneutics. It is essential that every student make a complete induction of all in the Bible which pertains to the day of the Lord and thus gain for himself firsthand knowledge of all that has been divinely determined for the extended period. 
it may then be seen that this day includes the judgments of God's upon the nations and upon Israel, and that these judgments occur at Christ's return. He would include all of the tribulation at this point. It includes both Christ's return and the kingdom of a thousand years, which follows. It extends indeed to the final dissolution with which the kingdom ends. So he's taking it from just like um, uh, Ironside did from the beginning of the, of the tribulation all the way through the millennial kingdom. Now, I've been told by several people over the years that the two most prominent disciples of Lewis Ferry Chafer in the early 50s were John Walford and Bob Thiem. So we've got to include, what do they say? The day of, Walford says, the day of the Lord will begin as a time period at the rapture because the day of the Lord will begin as a time period at the time of the rapture. Okay, what he's saying is it begins with the rapture. Then he says, the future period of God's intervention in the world will begin at the rapture and will include the period of trouble preceding the second coming of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. The day of the Lord also will include the millennial kingdom. The entire period before and after the second coming of Christ will constitute a special divine intervention and rule of righteousness on the earth in the way that is not experienced in the present age. He goes on to say, a little later on, I'll read the underlined part, Joel made it clear that the day of the Lord included the great tribulation before the second coming. The time of the restoration of Israel following the great tribulation is related to the second coming and will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. According to the Bible, he says here, this is another extended quote. Let me see here. Another extended quote that is from an article he wrote about a year before he died. His most mature thought. He says, according to the Bible, the day of the Lord is a time when God deals in direct judgment of the world in contrast to a time of grace when he does not. There were frequent days of the Lord in the Old Testament. We'll have to look at those briefly. There were frequent days of the Lord in the Old Testament when God dealt with Israel because of their straying and would bring in an invader and would introduce drought or famine or some other catastrophe. He's beginning to recognize it did not include blessing, but he doesn't go far enough. He says these periods had a beginning and an ending, but obviously were more than a 24-hour day. It was an extended period of time, long or short, depending on the circumstances. The term the day of the Lord is also to refer to the time of millennial blessing because in the millennium, God will deal in direct judgment on sin and there will be a rule with an iron scepter indicating absolute judgment as in Revelation 19.15, which is before the tribulation, by the way. So he sees the day of the Lord pictured as a time of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 4, in a period of 24 hours, the day comes before the darkness at evening. All these factors are brought out in the Old Testament references. Now, Charles Ryrie, who was also a student of uh, Lewis Berry Chafer and head of the theology department when I first started at Dallas, says, as used in the Bible, the broad concept of the day of the Lord always involved God's special intervention in the affairs of human history. That is correct. The concept includes three facets, a historical facet, that's days of the Lord that occurred and have been fulfilled. Uh, Second, an illustrative facet in which a historical incident of God's intervention is also illustrates a future invention. He cites Isaiah 13, 6 to 13, which has never been fulfilled in history. And three, an eschatological facet that is God's intervention in human history in the future. He says, all pre-males agree that the day of the Lord includes the events of the second coming and the literal thousand-year millennium to follow. That is not true at all. As I discovered, there's a lot of dispensationalists who did not, do not take that position. Pastor Theme said the day of the Lord includes the rapture, the last... See, the others say it starts after the rapture. 
He said it includes the rapture, the last half of the tribulation, second advent, and millennium totaling a thousand and seven years. It's also used for any portion of this period, the context dictating how long. Dwight Pentecost, in his doctoral dissertation, which was published as Things to Come, says that it's sufficient to point out that the term the day of the Lord or that day is not a term which applies to a 24-hour period, but rather the whole program of events, including the tribulation period, the second advent program, and the entire millennial age. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, In the Old Testament, the most common name for the great tribulation is the day of Jehovah or the day of the Lord found in various passages. Every reference will be dealt with at some point in this study. There are some who use the day of the Lord to include the millennium as well as the tribulation period, based upon 2 Peter 3.10. But as will be shown later in this chapter, this verse is best seen as applying to the tribulation only, rather than including the events following it. This is written by a man who almost always follows Ryrie in his positions. And there he makes a different case. So how do we determine the meaning of the day of the Lord? We have to study each and every use. Fortunately, there aren't that many, but we have to go through them. Now, I went through them and when we were in Revelation some years ago, and I'm probably going to have to correct myself in some of the statements I made, but that's what happens when you continue to study the Word of God. So it's going to take us a little time to go through these three verses because the issues that are involved here are not simple. And as you can see, some of the greatest minds, the greatest theological minds and exegetical minds that have led dispensational theology for over a hundred years can't agree on the meaning of these terms. But God knows exactly what they mean, and it takes time. God said we could understand his word, but he didn't say you're going to understand it by picking up the Bible and reading it one time. It may take you 50 years to figure out some things. It may take five generations to figure out other things because each generation builds on what they are taught before And they see, oh, that didn't quite work. Let's try something else. And eventually it's solidified. And so we're just part of that process. It's what makes theology fun and Bible study fun. So we'll get into this over the next month. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word and to be reminded that you desire for all men to be saved and you wait patiently giving all the opportunity, as many as possible, to trust in the gospel. But one day there will come an accountability, and that accountability and that judgment time on this earth is described by the phrase, Day of the Lord, and we need to understand what your word means by that so that we can rightly divide the word of truth. And we pray that you will enable us to do that. In Christ's name, amen.